Bankless Nation, I hope you are ready for another State of the Nation episode where we do a deep dive on an important topic. This topic is near and dear to our hearts and it's coming right up. Uh, the question of the merge, specifically the Ethereum merge, is the merge priced in? That's the question we want to get to the bottom of today. David, who do we have on? What are we going to talk about? Yeah, we have two bulls, two Ethereum bulls that are both bullish for the same reasons. Uh, we got Hal Press, who's been on the show before, and Ryan Beckermans, who's just talked a lot about this structural supply change that Proof of Stake brings to Ethereum, just like Hal Press does. So these two bulls are looking at the same data, and they're bullish for the same reasons, yet they differ in their time horizons. So on today on the episode, we get to talk about how bullish can we be? Can we be like super <laughs> bullish? Or can we only be just like, you know, cautiously optimistic bullish? Uh, so that's going to be the subject of today's show. Uh, I think it's going to be a fun one, uh, especially when like, you know, usually debate formats are like, no, I disagree on absolutely everything. This is a, no, we agree on like all the facts and circumstances. It's just a matter of time frame. The details. That we're really, yeah. The timing, mm -hmm. the details. That's what's important. And I think that's what everyone's trying to figure out is like, is the merge already priced in or not? Exactly. Like, how long is it going to take for the merge to be priced in? I know Hal has some uh, fundamentals that he likes to look at, and Ryan has some great insights as well. So we're going to get right into it. Um, but we also want to tell you about, um, a event that's coming up. This is a message sponsored by a SmartCon and our friends at Chainlink. This is a conference, David. I feel like it's conference season is maybe spinning up. Mm -hmm. We've got an Ethereum event in October, but we have SmartCon at the end of September. This is happening in New York City on the 28th and the 29th. What is SmartCon, David, and uh, who should be looking at this event? Yeah, SmartCon is, is Chainlink's annual conference. So they do this every single year. Uh, and this is actually the first time that they will have, be doing this in person. Uh, so you saw some uh, you know, crypto gigabrains that we all know and love. Stanny from uh, Aave, Kane from Synthetics, Ed from uh, Arbitrum, uh, SBF, of course. Uh, but this is just uh, Chainlink's yearly summit uh, where they just put a bunch of the gigabrains who generally are all associated with smart contracts and, uh, and oracles and are plugged into the Chainlink ecosystem. Uh, and they have a multi-day long speaking event. Um, like I said, uh, 2019 or 2020 was the first one. 2021 was the second one. But 2022 will be the first in real life smart con hosted by Chainlink that will be in New York at the end of September. Uh, there is a link in the show notes to go get your ticket. There is also a code bankless to get, I think, something like a little over 20% off of your ticket if you so choose to go. Uh, so this will be in New York. Uh, conference season is um, rotating into New York. We got SmartCon, we got Mainnet. Uh, so this is kind of going to be one the one to kick this off. So thank you to our friends at Chainlink for sponsoring this message. Yeah, it's pretty cool too. Chainlink always brings the best um, the best speakers to Eric Schmidt going to be attending this. Of course, former CEO, chairman of Google as well. Uh, as uh, a lot of this, David, looks like a roster of, of previous bankless yeah. guests. So <laughs> you got that as well. All right, David, I got to ask you the question we start all of these episodes with, which is what is the state of the nation today? The state of the nation, Ryan, is cautiously bullish. I think, I mean, we have on every single weekly roll up talked about how like bullish the merge is on a fundamental level. We don't really lean into like, okay, here is what the price on the chart is going to do here at this moment in time. And so that's because I'm a little bit scared to do that. But we this is it. This there's is, macro this is events. A, yeah, there's macro stuff, which is also a topic of today's conversation. So, Ryan, the state of the nation is cautiously bullish. And we're going to figure out, hopefully by the end of this episode, how much 
how much I can remove that caution. Like, can I get really <laughs> bullish? Is that allowed here? David wants to remove that caution quite a bit. And we're going to get, uh, I guess, permission or some insights, some thoughts from our guests on, on whether it makes sense to do that or not. We will be right back with Hal and Ryan to talk about whether the merge is priced in or not. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Hey guys, we are back talking about the all-important subject of whether the merge is priced in, the Ethereum merge. Is it priced in or not? We've got two guests to introduce to you today. Hal Press, he's been on the show before. Hal Press leads Northrock Digital, which is a fund that Hal has set up that he is betting the fund on the merge, basically. That's where the capital is going. He sees a massive asymmetric opportunity that the merge brings. We had him on a bank list, I think back in May, Hal, mm-hmm. if, I'm, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. And I think that episode was really influential on a whole bunch of people and how they think about the merge, mainly on whether we are being bullish enough or not. And Hal's conclusion was, we are not being bullish enough. Hal, it's great to have you back on Bankless. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me back. Uh, guys, we also have Ryan Berkmans, who's also an Ethereum bull. Okay, make no mistake. Uh, Ryan has been bullish on Ether, the asset, for a while. He is an investor and a community member. Someone who thinks deeply about the merge's impact on ETH supply dynamics. He's also a developer, and he's got a different position on the on the merge, but also a closely related position. Ryan, it's great to have you on Bankless. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. I'm going to summarize uh, your takes here, but like we'll kind of get into it through the rest of this episode. I think how your position is, you're bullish on the merge, both in the short run, in the medium run, and on the long run. I think, Ryan, your position is you're maybe not as bullish on the short run, run price action. Uh, you don't think it's Im- like the merge is immediately going to take us to Va- Valhalla and from a pricing perspective. Uh, but in the medium run, in the long run, you are a bit more bullish. Have I captured that accurately? Maybe I'll start with you, Ryan. What do you think? I think that's right. My bullishness on the merge comes from my near certain belief that Ethereum's going to win over the medium to long term. Yet the short term, I think, looks a little rockier uh, for reasons predominantly outside our community's control. And what are we talking about, just to define uh, short-term here, Ryan? Are we talking about, like, what, what is short-term to you where, where things remain rocky, and w- when does uh, Ethereum, the, the merge, start to get priced in? For me, the short-term is 6 to 24 months. I'm not bullish over that time period, unfortunately. I think that there's a lot of challenges going on in the world right now. Our community is doing an incredible job to move the merge forward, and the merge represents the future of Ethereum. So when we look at all the great stuff enabled by the merge, it's going to put us on a path that will eventually make Ethereum the number one coin. Uh, It will uh, make crypto environmentally friendly and put us on the road to really aligning with how the rest of the world works so we can continue to build a a symbiotic, broader economy of the crypto and real world economy. Uh, However, you know, over the short term, I think... uh, I think a lot of the the usual suspects may get in the way, including Bitcoin's dominance and you know kind of the the Bitcoin maxi crew, uh, as well as uh, uh, Russia's war, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, you know it sounds like the economy was not necessarily doing so great before COVID, and so uh, I think I think there are potentially some some headwinds uh, over the short term. 
Ryan, uh, I want to just drill down on something you said, because I, th- I think this uh, symbolizes a little bit of your position. You, uh, you think that the macro is just a bigger deal than, you know, Ether, proof of stake, the merge, et cetera. And so part, part of the theme of this conversation, I think, is going to be who wins merge versus the macro. And I think your position is very much macro still wins. Is that right? That's right. I, I see the price of Ether in U.S. dollars as being uh, just sort of the uh, the ETH versus Bitcoin multiplied by Bitcoin versus U.S. dollar. So this is something we all take for granted in in our crypto adventure, where we we open you know CoinGecko every day and we look at the ranks and we look at has Ether gained on Bitcoin, and that's fantastic. Uh, but I think that when we think about will the merge deliver the U.S. dollar all-time highs we all want, I think there's a question of, okay, if it were to deliver the all-time highs, do we primarily see those gains as being versus Bitcoin or and or versus total crypto market cap? Is, is that total pie growing? And my view is that both of those components are going to unfortunately uh, struggle over the short term and then just do wonderfully in the years to come. And Hal, turning to you, can you summarize your position and perhaps also the timing on what you think uh, this price action is really going to be expressed in? And also, would you say it's accurate that you believe that the merge is more powerful than macro? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot of different pockets to really get into there. I'd, I'd, I'd characterize the timeframes a little bit differently. You know, I'd sort of think about the short term as shorter than six to 24 months. To me, the short term is really from now until directly after the merge. Um, and then like a few days after that is when call, call it the medium term begins. And then that probably goes, runs for another six to 12 months. And then after that's where the, the long term would begin. And I'd kind of think about it in those three pockets. Um, I think where I differ is that I'm not as bearish on the macro as Ryan. Um, I generally don't think people have a ton of ability to predict the macro. To, so to say that, like to try to forecast a negative macro environment from here, I think is naive. Um, and so I think about it more idiosyncratically as like, what can I expect about ETH just versus the rest of crypto market cap. So just taking out macro. Um, and what I'd say on that front is, you know, when I came on the podcast last time and certainly really started kind of pounding the table um, in, in June after that capitulation that we had around 3AC and Luna, I felt like the case for idiosyncratic merge outperformance was extremely strong. Um, I felt like that was kind of a generate that was when the generational opportunity really began. You know, we were kind of three months away from the merge. People still didn't believe it was going to happen in September. People didn't think it was going to be a big deal. And it was all starting to come into focus. And that's where I felt like, you know, that that was the the most the most juicy opportunity. Um, and I think since then, ETH has massively outperformed basically every other crypto asset on a beta adjusted basis. So you know it's up close to 100% off the lows, whereas a lot of the higher beta alts, which you would expect, like if, if someone told you from June, ETH would be up 100, and you said, okay, what would the basket of Solana, Avalanche, Cosmos be up? I mean, you would have guessed like on the beta, at least 150%. But if you look, it's actually, they're only up 40%. So they've massively underperformed despite higher beta. 
And if you look versus Bitcoin, the ETH BTC ratio is higher now than it was when Bitcoin was 30,000. Um, so like ETH has dramatically outperformed pretty much every asset in crypto since that point on a beta adjusted basis. And to me, it's almost entirely attributable to the merge. So I think, you know, that's already happened. So I think like we no longer have to debate whether the merge is going to have an impact. It's already had one. Um, however, you know, now we have a date. It's September 15th, 16th. Everybody knows about it. A lot of people are talking about the merge. So like whether the merge is priced in or not, I don't think it's a binary. I think it's more priced in now than it was in, in June, but it is still not priced in, in my opinion. I think there's more room to go, but I think if you like, if you had to rank it, it's, it's probably a bit more priced in. And then to kind of get to why I think it's ultimately not priced in, I think it's useful to break down you know, how I think about catalysts in general. To me, there's really three kinds of catalysts. Um, I talked about this a bit in the initial piece I wrote, and they all have to do with flow. So the, the, the first and easiest to price in type of catalyst is a fundamental catalyst. So if you have a stock that is going to report earnings, and everybody knows that stock is going to probably have good earnings, and then they have good earnings, the stock generally doesn't move. And the reason is because even though good news came out, it didn't actually change anybody's view because they already knew the good news was going to come out. And fundamentals don't actually impact price directly. They only impact price through their ability to create flows on the other side. And if everyone was already positioned for the good earnings, it's not going to change anyone's mind. And therefore, no one's going to update their position. And therefore, the stock doesn't move. And so those fundamental catalysts are like, OK, we know it's coming. It comes and nothing happens in the price. And those are easiest to price in, in my opinion. And then you have what I'd call kind of a one-time flow um, catalyst. So XYZ token or stock has a big um, holder unlock on a certain date and the market knows about it in advance, but it's still harder to price in because the market has to actually go in and front run that flow. So let's say they know there's a thousand units unlocking and 80% of those will be sold. So there's 800 that are going to be sold on that date. The market has to go in and sell those 800 units. And then when they actually unlock, buy them back to effectively price it in so it doesn't move on the date. And generally what happens is the market somewhat prices it in, they'll buy, they'll, they'll sell like 400 or 500 units, but not the full 800. And so it becomes somewhat priced in. And those one-time flow catalysts, even though they're known in advance, aren't usually fully priced in. And then the last kind of catalyst that I think about is what's called a structural flow catalyst, which is what the merge is, which is, it's not at a certain date, there's going to be this one flow that happens and it's over. It's at a certain date for the rest of eternity, there'll be a continuous flow. And every single day. And that is the hardest to price in and, and really kind of impossible to price in because if you want to price that in, you need to have somebody doing the other side of that action every single day into the event and then unwinding it every single day after the event has occurred. And that's really not a practical thing. There just aren't any market participants that do that. And so a question becomes, okay, we know it's not priced in, but for how long is it priced in? That's really it. Like eventually, you know, you will chew through all of the supply that 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 needs to come out. But it's kind of a question of looking at the magnitudes and how long is that going to take. And so ultimately, that's why I don't think the merge is priced in. Like as a as a, if you ask me that as a binary, but I think ultimately it's probably a bit more priced in now than it was um, call it two months ago. That's a kind of an overview. And then yeah, happy to get into any of the kind of specifics from there. Ryan, what, what thoughts came to mind while you were listening to Hal just now? 
I think that that Hal. I never know which Ryan you're talking to. <laughs> <laughs> Always guess Ryan. <laughs> All right. There's Ryan A. Perfect. and There's Ryan B. This is Ryan B. Thank you. Yeah. Perfect. It works just fine. Now, uh, Hal. Uh, I think Hal's absolutely right that a huge part of the world, including those who are allocating into crypto or buying or selling tokens, they don't realize the merge is actually happening. They don't realize it's definitely, you know, more or less definitely going to work based on the robust track record of, of test nets and due diligence from, from the community. They don't, they also don't realize that, that, so much in my view, and I think Hal's view as well, so much of the prices are are today in this era determined by this proof of work selling schedule. Like the amount, the amount of crypto that that we paid miners last year through the bull run was just stratospheric. It was incredible. So I, I think Hal's right that that going into the merge, there is significant opportunity for short-term gains for ETH as those participants who just don't even believe the merge is real uh, are disillusioned, uh, you know, as well as I think that just the general execution risk around the merge, which uh, especially is difficult for uh, the decentralized population of capital allocators to estimate. So if you're, if you're a merge engineer, you know, maybe you're sleeping well, you think it's going to work, no problem. But I think a lot of us are like, wow, they're changing the engine of the airplane while it's running. Let's see how that goes. So I have full, you know, full faith and confidence in the merge and our community's progress towards uh, swapping, swapping mainnet off mining. Uh, but there are those who don't, and so I, I think, I think Hal's view that the merge poses significant, uh, very near-term gain potential. It makes sense to me. I think what we're really getting at here is: is the merge trade crowded, and is it overcrowded? Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. if we look from the external world of crypto the people who don't pay attention to crypto they're not on the train they are not on the train at all like they got off the train if they were even on it like back when prices went down for like four four months in a row but really i think the alpha that we're trying to get at is like how much of the internal to the crypto industry is on the train like the and one of my signals that i've gotten is that there's so much like anti-ethereum anti-merge like fud and hate on crypto twitter lately that's telling me that there's a lot of people unexposed to the merge uh and so before i throw it throw it uh, back to hal ryan do you have any any like insights or thoughts as to like how how much exposure does the general crypto market have to eth right now i I think a lot of folks picked their horses and they like to hold their horses for the long term. And I, I don't think that the progress on the merge has changed many people's minds about the overall distribution of capital in the industry. So you look at folks who who own Bitcoin and Bitcoin's today worth about double Ether. I don't think they look at the merge progress and I don't think they they say, wow, my Bitcoin thesis is wavering now that the merge is scheduled. My Bitcoin thesis is wavering now that the testnet merge was successful. I don't think they feel that way. So no, I think I think a lot of folks are unprepared for the success of the merge. And I I think while while I have no specific trading expertise over a time horizon of like days to weeks, that's not my expertise. I I would say there's a lot of folks who are not going to see the success of this thing coming. And it's it is important to note, just for context for for listeners, that like 
the merch has been kicked back for years and years. And so like now that it's finally had a date, like it's kind of been like built into like, ex- like if you're not on the, in the Ethereum world, like when it, there's an actual merge announcement, like it's kind of built into your DNA to ignore that. Ryan, would you say that that's kind of, we're chalking that up to like some evidence as to why people are still unpositioned for the merge? Oh, absolutely, David. Uh, I have a good friend from college who's not a crypto fellow. He's uh, he's a, a Silicon Valley engineer, sort of ardently anti-crypto, uh, great buddy. Uh, and him and I had a bet about a year ago that the merge would happen this year. Uh, and I, I sent him a message last week and I said, hey, buddy, the merge has been scheduled. I'm going to win the bet. And he said, yeah, right. Crypto bro is always saying the merge is scheduled. It's a bunch of crap. So I, I, I genuinely think that uh, they don't believe us. That's so it's such a weird uh, thesis to have, I guess, when it's so easily disprovable after the execution date happens and after it cuts over and after it actually works. But um, yeah, Hal, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this in terms of kind of how crowded the merge trade is? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. And it's a it's a thing that I think about a lot. Um, and there's a few different ways to look at it. And I don't think you can really get an answer from any one of the the pockets, you kind of have to look at a mosaic and piece it together. So I'd say there's a few signs on, on either side. Like just um, to, just as the first thing I'd say, I, I agree with David, there is like a lot of pushback. Um, I think there's, it's it's almost become a consensus view now that the merge is going to be sell the news, which in my mind makes it less likely that it actually is sell the news if everyone thinks it's going to be sell the news. Um, and there's also this, this a lot of, of FUD been building up about the execution risk and the timing risk. I guess just kind of one quick point about how I think about that um, personally is in my mind, it's probably somewhere on the order of 95% likely that the merge goes smoothly. Um, And I think you're probably looking like if we just, you're going to have to come up with numbers to handicap these things. So these, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, but just for the sake of the exercise, if we assume the merge is up 10%, assuming merge happens smoothly the next day, um, and ETH is down 40% on average in an adverse scenario. So that'd be like, you know, 2,100 by 1,200, which seems like about kind of the right um, scenarios. And if you apply a 95% probability that it's going to be successful and a 5% probability that it won't, you're still very positive EV holding ETH the day of the merge. And that's kind of how I'd think about it. So I actually don't worry too much about the execution risk personally. Um, but I do think the market will probably worry and, and is already um, getting somewhat concerned. So just, I do agree with David's point that that there is a lot of fear already built into the market. The other thing I'd say though, on the other side is, you know, you don't have the moves like I just articulated where ETH's up 100% and the higher beta alts are up 40 and ETH BTC is way higher than it was when Bitcoin was higher. Like that stuff doesn't happen without positioning changing. So like clearly it is more crowded than it was two months ago, just like factually. Like, like it just that's just the 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 way that it that the the market has evolved. And then the other kind of thing I'd look at to suggest that maybe there is um something priced in is if you look at the options open interest data, ETH open interest is higher than Bitcoin for the first time in history. And a lot of that is calls, people speculating that ETH will go up around the merge. So those are kind of like the two signs that I'd say suggest that it maybe there is some anticipation. However, um, if you look at like other near-term positioning data, like it's something that I look at a lot is, is perpetuals data. 
open interest is quite low and funding has been negative for a long time, um, which indicates that there really isn't a lot of what I'd call hot money positioning for the trade right now. Um, and that kind of FUD has kept them on the sidelines. Um, and what I kind of think has happened is that you've had a slow trickle of retail and longer term institutions kind of trickling in. And then this fast money continually trying to fade in. And that's why, you know, that data indicates that they're not long, but yet the price has continued to move up. Um, so I'd say we're somewhere in the middle uh, between crowded and not crowded. Like I would say two months ago, we were very not crowded and now we're somewhere in the middle. And that's one of the reasons that gives me confidence that the trade can continue to work, you know, into and through the event um, is because, I just think, you know, this, this narrative is going to continue to circulate and it is very attractive to both institutions and retail. And so as we approach and as the day comes into focus and as more and more people start talking about it, I think we will continue to see that trickle in of money that should continue to produce that positive flow dynamic. However, that, that is like somewhat unknowable. I think that to answer the question of how it's going to trade in the short term, you kind of have to know how much retail participation are we going to have and, and how, how broadly is that thesis going to circulate? Um, and I really don't know the answer to that question. I think it does depend somewhat on macro. I talk about this in the, in the paper, which I'm going to be putting out um, tomorrow with, with Bankless, um, that to me, there's like some green shoots in crypto right now. Um, some positive signs, but their survival will depend somewhat on the macro. Like if the macro, and if the macro has been very favorable, like the S&P is up 15% off the lows, basically in a straight line as people are starting to price in that inflation is, is less sticky. Um, and if that continues, as I think is plausible, then in my opinion, like those green shoots will probably continue to grow. And then ETH will continue to have this momentum through the merge. But if it doesn't, then they may not. And so it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's unknowable. And that's kind of how I'd frame it. By the way, um, my, my bias you... and my base case would be that it does continue, but it's obviously not 100%. I was going to say, by the way, Hal mentioned a, uh, a, an article. I, I would consider this more like a report that um, he's <laughs> publishing tomorrow. And that's going out to all Bankless subscribers. Uh, we'll recap where you can get that at the end of the episode, but um, make sure you're subscribed to Bankless Newsletter and you're, you'll receive that report. Last I checked, it was like 25 pages, and it was an update Great. on Hal's merge thesis. Just a fantastic report on this. Uh, David, I think you wanted yeah. to grab the next. Yeah. I, on the topic of just like how crowded this merge train is, again, in the short term, I do want to start to kick this out into the, the medium term. So let's get to the actual date of the merge. Hal, Ryan, I'm gonna, I'm assuming... And correct me if I'm wrong, that we are more or less uh, pricing in, as in like these people on this call here, like a 95% plus certainty that the merge is going to work and there's not going to be any mm -hmm. significant drama. Would that be a fair take? Nods from you both? Absolutely. The uh, There's a reason it took seven years. We have some of the smartest, most earnest folks in the world that have been ensuring that it works, looking at edge cases that you know most of us couldn't imagine exists, never mind get to the bottom of, it's going to work. Uh, it's just incredible the effort we've seen from the community to move all the parts of this forward into the big date here. Uh, I have I have uh, some some friends involved in the process and, you know, more closely, you know, who are developers and just the the amount of, of burning the midnight oil and uh, healthy paranoia to ensure that we have all the boxes checked. It's just, it's absolutely inspiring. Same from you, Hal. 
Yeah, I, I use that 95% figure and that's the figure that I'm using. I think like as a fund manager, you have to have some level of conservatism so that you don't get complacent with, with edge cases. But if you put a gun to my head and said, what do you really believe the risk is? I would I would say it's lower than that. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's kind of like the, the risk case that I'm using. And then the other thing, just to like go back for one second, I don't want to undersell like the importance of this catalyst though. Like to me, it truly is still a massive, massive event, probably the biggest event in crypto history in many years. And it's a like very big deal with a very strong positive bias. So while I think that the future is unknowable and there are certainly multiple paths, I, I definitely still retain a positive bias. How much capital is out there in the crypto markets that when the merge does happen and it is successful and it's like the day after the merge is September 17th and all the Ethereum community mm-hmm. is like super happy, how much capital is then like, okay, now I'll buy ETH versus I think there's a decent amount of like, you know, Bitcoin maxis out there that are like still, they're just going to move the goalposts and they're like, no, I'm just never going to buy ETH. Like how, how much capital do you think is sidelined waiting for the day that the merge is a success? Ryan, do you have any indications about this? Ryan B? You know, I think that, how much capital may be available? Probably a better how question. Uh, I, I come from the computer science and, and kind of strategy background. Uh, I, I uh, how? What do you think? Um, I think it depends on where we are that day. Like, I think you can answer that question if it happened today. Like, so if it happened today, I think there's plenty of capital. Like, I think people, the fast money is on the sideline. Like, you can look at that from the data. Um, a lot of people are still fading it. A lot of people are worried. There's going to be plenty of money to purchase it the next day. If by the time we get to the merge, you know, there's a frenzy that's developed and um, every, like the, the thesis is blaring from the loudspeakers of the mainstream media and the, and the positioning data is different, you know, there, there may be less of that. More of that may have come in in advance. And then on the flip side, if macro worsens between now and then, and some of the money that is already in actually exits in advance, then there will probably be even more money. So I'd say right now there's a moderate amount, but there's potential for that to change. And I, I'd say like that, that moderate amount is probably on the order of low single digit billions. Low single digit billions. Uh, do you have any idea how much that would actually move the price? Like I said, my kind of base case is something around 10% next day move, assuming success. And 10%. wow, I, I love that question of if there's $3 billion flowing into Ether, how much does that move the price? Yeah. And uh, the, thing, the thing that's interesting there is it's actually... I think as community members, you know, we're always seeing DGENs dumping things and prices skyrocketing and falling. And like, why do they do that? Why, why is there such extreme volatility? And the answer is that it's, uh, uh, it's because of supply inelasticity. It's because uh, when, you, when you dump a certain amount of money into a token, well, it depends a lot more on the circulating supply. And it depends on uh, whether you buying it actually make the existing holders more bullish so they they raise their own personal price targets and and it it really puts you in a situation where when when you buy 3 billion dollars you know market buy of ether uh over you know let's just say instantaneously 
the market cap is going to rise a whole lot more than $3 billion. Well, how much more than $3 billion? Well, there have been some studies that have suggested that every, every dollar of new crypto purchased can raise the price between the market cap, pardon me, every, every dollar of net fiat inflows into a crypto could raise the market cap like $5 to $20. That's the, that's the, dump, the pump and dump phenomenon. And it's really this, this phenomenon of, of, of market cap being so enormously responsive to fiat inflows and outflows that I think is at the heart of Hallenai's thesis around proof of stake uh, taking us to the moon. Because while, while we look at that very exciting $3 billion that may be ready to enter, enter Ether you know, the week following the successful merge, well, at the height of the bull run, we were paying a billion dollars a week combined to the miners of Bitcoin plus Ethereum, one billion a week to, to both miners. Uh, and most of that went to Ethereum miners because we pay them a lot more than Bitcoin miners. Mm. And so uh, I just think there's sort of that interesting relationship between that short-term capital entry versus, you know, to to, to Hallenai's point, uh, that reduction in miner sell pressure after the merge. So just very, very, very exciting pump and dump type economics here. Ryan, you are uh, sounding pretty bullish, my friend. Yeah. Even in the short, even the short run. But we'll get to maybe some more of the differences. I, I, I do want to get back to kind of the the, the core s- structural shift here and the significance yeah. and maybe the the magnitude of it. And I know mm-hmm. how that was um, part of the reason you came on our episode way back in May. And I think you've got some kind of like updated numbers in sure. your new report that you're putting out tomorrow. But could you just remind us of the structural significance? So we've got maybe. Three billion or so in inflows waiting on the on the sidelines, but um, we also have um, a, a ma- massive reduction of outflows, and that I think is the right. the core merge thesis. Can you recap right. us on the magnitude of this and and why we're all bullish on the merge to begin with? Sure, and then you know the uh, the flip side of that is how much money has already come in that will look to exit post to sell the news, and then what's the magnitude of that? And that's kind of like the equation you yes. have to counterbalance, um, but it just yeah, just to give you a quick recap, so about 15,000 ETH tokens get issued a day, which is about $30 million at current prices. Um, and I assume you know, 75%, 80% or so of that is sold daily. So just for math's sake, you know, we can assume $20 million of daily supply at, at current USD prices. Um, and so when you break that down, it's, a, it's, it's on the order of half a billion dollars a month. Um, and so when you think about the impact of the merge, you can think about half a billion dollars of supply gets chewed up every month going forward that didn't used to. So like when you think about that, like let's just say you had $2 billion coming in, $5 billion coming out, so net $3 billion of outflow, that might price in the merge for six months because it would take you six months to create the, the $3 billion necessary to fully um, offset that 3 billion of net outflows post-merge. I'm not saying those are the numbers, but those are kind of like, that's the framework in which I would think about it. And then if you want to think about like purely the structural flow dynamic, if you the, 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 it's hard to do this and you have to make a, a variety of assumptions. But for me, what I do, I assume after talking to a few sources that roughly 80% of the volume that occurs day to day is quants, just batting it back and forth with no actual discretionary movement. And then 20% or so 
is kind of real discretionary volume. And so I handicap all the volume numbers by uh, a, a factor of five. If you do that, and then you look at what is the mining volume, the mining selling volume as a percent of total volume, you get to something on the order of 1%. And now 1% might not sound like a lot, but 1% is a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. Um, so that structural flow dynamic is, is quite meaningful. You can think about it in that 1% context, or you can think about it in the half a billion dollars per month context. And then the most useful context that like for a lot of crypto natives to think about it in is just in ETH terms, right? Like I, the fund is relatively small, but I've transacted some relatively larger amounts of ETH over the last eight months. And you kind of get a feel for, you know, what actually impacts the market. Um, and, you know, in that context, like if you told me someone was going to TWAP a buy of 70,000 ether every single week for the next year, I'd be like, all right, that's, that's pretty meaningful. Like that's, that's probably going to matter. Um, that's what happens with the merge. But the only thing is it's, it's that 70 K per week that that's the way that the math works out is about 10,000 a day. Um, and the difference is that it doesn't end after a year. It just continues forever. Right. So, um, that's kind of the context that, that I would think about it in and kind of how I'd think about the timeframes. And the reason for that, Hal, of course, for, for people who maybe they don't know very much about the merge, but uh, is because we no longer have to pay miners. We're yeah. no longer having to pay miners for the proof of work. It's completely proof yeah. of stake. And so all of that um, expense to the network is essentially gone. The, the TLDR is that your issuance, your, your gross issuance gets cut 90%. So instead of if issuing 15,000 tokens per day to miners, you issue roughly 1.5 thousand to stakers. But the impact is even more profound because the miners have very high OPEX and therefore sell a large portion of their issuance. The stakers have very low OPEX and also by definition are Ethereum holders to begin with and probably have a bullish view on Ethereum long-term and probably don't want to sell their rewards um, and don't need to because they have lower OPEX. So they both get much, much, much fewer issuance or much less issuance, many fewer tokens, and they sell a smaller portion of what they do get. I want to bring in Ryan in, in just a minute, but one more question when, when you're, while you're on that thread. Um, so recently, since we last talked, um, I think Ethereum uh, revenue, block space fees have been down um, quite a bit. In fact, we're now like, I don't know, 10 Gwei or something. Dave and I look at this 11 on, right now, on today, a weekly yeah. basis mm-hmm. uh, is kind of the median uh, price, the average price. Uh, for ETH. And that's actually, that, that means uh, Ether might not be deflationary uh, post-merge. Mm-hmm. It may or may not. We're kind of right on the line. How does this impact some of your analysis, Hal? Is this a, is this a bearish thing? Like block space demand has gone down and fee revenue is down? Or does this not matter for the sake of your analysis? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, and it's something that I thought about and reference in the paper. Like the certainly, there's a short answer is yes. Like fees and demand for block space is certainly lower than it was six months ago. I think it's kind of interesting to think about why that is too. It's not just a reduction in activity. It's also that a lot of the applications have become more efficient. So for example, OpenSea is 40% more efficient with their transactions than they used to be. So if you actually look at the daily active ETH users, they haven't changed all that much. Um, I think they're less active on average and the applications are more efficient. 
but I think the the absolute level of the declines is probably overstates the impact on the activity. But then when you think about that, I mean, yes, it, it does impact a lot of the numbers in ver- in various ways. Like the staking rate that I'm predicting post-merge now is about 5%, whereas before I was predicting closer to 9%. And that's a function of the um, lower fees. However, it's not all negative. I'd say it's a little bit more mixed. On the on the positive end of the spectrum is the fact that fees are low. Like people complain about when fees are high and they complain about when fees are low. Um, the, the benefit that you get when fees are low is that it's just a, a, a more friendly chain to use. Um, and 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 you that ad- the adoption is easier to keep in the Ethereum ecosystem than other L1s because no one's really fleeing the ETH ecosystem because they don't want to pay $2 fees. Like, yes, you could probably pay half a penny on some other chain, but it's not driving the, the decision nearly as much as when you're paying for a $200 Uniswap um, transaction. So where you know, like you said, we're kind of right at this equilibrium where fees are high enough to burn almost all the issuance that we are emitting, yet they're still low enough such that they're not really inhibiting adoption. So in some ways, they're kind of optimal in that sense. Um, but but yes, in terms of the the kind of model outputs, it's it's definitely a, a negative impact. And then you said that five percent does that five percent staking um, APY does that does that include MEV or not? That's uh, maximum uh, maximum extractable value. Um, it it includes an estimate for it. Yes, um, it but it's like. Okay. It's it's debatable. You can if you want if you want to apply like a maximum impact, you can get closer to six somewhere in that range. Um, but yeah, you can call it five to six percent. Um, but I think you know one thing that I talk about in the paper too that that I think is important when we're going to talk about the staking yield is a move from current rate today, which is about four percent, to post merge, which is five percent, doesn't sound like a whole lot. It's like all right, all of this for a one percent increase, but it's not. That doesn't tell the whole story. Um, to understand kind of the true impact, you have to think about not just the nominal yield, which is like the sticker value, but also the real yield, which is how much issuance you're having to emit to achieve that yield. So when you think about the yield of an asset, like let's just take Cosmos, for example, I think they have something like 15% APY, but the reason they have 15% APY is because they emit 15% of tokens each year. So they're Nominal yield is 15%, but their real yield is 15% of, of APY minus 50% of issuance, which is zero. Um, so as a staker, you don't actually make any money. It's just basically a game of issuing new tokens and you're getting diluted at this rate, but you're also receiving the more tokens, so your, your, your stake stays flat. So your real yield is actually zero. And if you look at the case of Ethereum today, your real yield is also very low. You're receiving about 4.2%, but the network is inflating at approximately 4.1%. So your real APY is really only 0.1%. Um, now, post-merge, that 42 increases to 5 but much more meaningfully, your issuance decreases from 4.1% to pretty much 0 So you go from a 0.1% real yield to a 5% real yield. And that is a massive, massive shift. And the fact, and that that will create basically the first real yield in crypto, which is a really profound. There's there's dynamic. nothing. I think your paper said there's nothing even close to this. The closest is maybe uh, the BNB chain, just something right. like one percent. 
And that's right. getting its yield from fees or is that? Um, that is getting its yield from fees. So BNB is the one other chain that has legitimate fee pool that does have real yield, but it is it is lower. This difference is, um, it, this really starts to make Ether uh, look when it, in its staked form like a bond, like an internet bond, as we've been talking about uh, all along. And, and the way you're framing that real versus nominal is, seems to be the way that people talk about bonds, right? It's like, what's your what's your um, real return on, on uh, bonds? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So it depends the price of the bond. So like if you buy a bond at 95 on on the dollar and it's yielding 5%, your real yield is going to be closer to 10 because you're going to make up the par plus the yield. But like if we assume you're just playing par for the bond, then your real yield is just the, the yield of the coupon payment. Um, I actually don't quite agree with the internet bond analogy, but this is kind of semantics. Like to me, like it's not just bonds that have yield, right? Apple stock has a real yield. It's in the form of earnings. And to me, ETH is more akin to Apple stock than it is to US treasury bond because if you buy a U.S. Treasury bond, you know you're getting a fixed principal payment at a certain date in the future, right? If you buy Apple stock, you know you're getting a yield for as long as you hold it, and then when you go to sell it, it's whatever someone's willing to pay for you, pay for it. And that's the case with Ether as well. It's not like you buy $100 of Ether, you get this yield for 10 years, and then in 10 years, you can just you know you'll be able to sell it for $100. It may go up, it may go down, you don't know, and you get yield paid in the, in the interim. Yeah, so I think it's more similar to an equity. Okay, I don't want to say that word. Similar to a stock than, um, I, than I, a, I, I do that see that bond. comparison. But like going back to kind of the the real versus nominal, um, you know, bond yield. Right. It's like if you're buying a a sovereign bond, for example, you're gonna have to take out inflation to see if you're actually making real returns on that thing. Right. It's like if you're sure. getting a return of like four percent on the bond, but inflation's like nine percent. Your purchasing power is diminished by five percent, right? So that doesn't, you know, that doesn't make sense. Whereas, like, it's, it's different in Ethereum. The, this is a true real return of five percent. And if right. you like, if you want to compare um, the internet bond to other sovereign bonds in its class, that is a lens to compare it to. You can compare it right. to equities. Because I think that's fair. To bonds and. and- we could we could spend the whole episode on the nuance of this. So uh, we, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll pass. Well, to to take this conversation forward about the same subject matter though, is that one of the models I've had for like this yield on Ethereum is that it might actually be something that attracts a lot of external capital. Um, maybe it attracts more capital from the crypto space, but it might actually be the thing that penetrates out into the quote unquote real world, the legacy world, and attract a bunch of new buyers to buy ether on the principle of the actual real yield. Um, How do you have any sort of like measurement or magnitude of how uh, much capital might flow in just based off of this or any any like speculation there? Yeah. It's like impossible to say, you know, like I I, actually, it's not not impossible. I haven't done the necessary analysis to say this is how much capital is out there with a mandate to invest in kind of bond like assets. And I think X percent of it is going to come in and blah, blah, blah. I haven't done that work, but what I would say is, I definitely agree with you. It's a very investable thesis for large institutions. If they know this is a product that actually generates revenue from actual users and the revenue actually gets returned to the holders and that's where the yield comes from. That is an important dynamic and an important part of a thesis for some of those larger investors. 
Ryan, turning this conversation to you, you you've hinted at this once in the show, and I know I'm, I believe it's also your pinned tweet on Twitter. Um, but I also wanted to get your comment on uh, just like the magnitude of this whole yield conversation. Can you talk about just the limitations of Ether going up in price under this proof of work dynamic and how as proof of work prices go up, then also proof of work selling goes up? And then also any thoughts or comments that you have on this whole like real yield conversation? Certainly, yeah. I, I, so for me, the uh, one of the most important fundamentals uh, to learn about crypto may be that different kinds of inflation are not necessarily an apples to apples comparison. And so when, when you're running a proof of work chain and you pay your miners 5%, you know, to Hal's point, miners, miners have a, a, a cost structure that makes them, they, they have a competitive dynamic of mining that makes them willing and able to pay up to $1 in new marginal expense of hardware and energy to capture that extra one juicy dollar of mining revenue. And so Ethereum's success, Ethereum's success creates its own drag coefficient that mm. like for, for last year, for example, uh, 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 part of the, part of the previous segment of the conversation talked about fees and the declining fee structure. And, uh, last year during the bull run fees exploded, right? Who benefited from that? It was just miners. And in what way did they benefit? Their mining revenue went up. And so they, they invest more in, in hardware and grow their mining operations, which increases their cost structure. And so the when you pay 5% inflation to miners, that very significantly hurts your chain's market cap versus 5% to validators. And so uh, the fact that this cost structure scales with the market cap and hurts the price of the chain so much was you know the the reason that that the my group uh, was was very happy to go short at the top last year. You know we we got out of a lot of our stuff uh, because we just we just looked at the numbers and we said you know there's a lot of folks who think that you know there may be you know super cycle theory or that this is you know not yet the top because it's really just going mainstream. And we just looked at some of the some of the money being spent on mining during the peak. Uh, and it was just it was just our view that those kinds of rallies are unsustainable uh, under proof of work. And I think that, you know, shows why, you know, part of why the transition to proof of stake is so exciting is that next time, you know, whether it's three, three months or three years from now, we start to go back to all time highs. Well, this time we're not going to have proof of work weighing us down. And, and that weight is extremely significant. And, you know, the subject of much debate, I would say as recently as a year or two ago, almost nobody believed that the true cost of proof of work was uh, non-trivial. They all just thought they were like, oh, miners sell some tokens. It's no problem. You know, let's focus on the, the real stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think a proof of work, very, very expensive. All inflation is not created equal. And, you know, proof of stake is going to fix that for us. This phrase, a uh, drag coefficient, I think is really apt to describe really what's going on here because as your pri the price of your proof of work asset scales, so does the size of the selling pressure of the miners of that same proof of work asset. So Ryan, is it your opinion that no matter how many ways this in crypto industry plays out, it's going to be a proof of stake asset that finds itself as the number one store of value cryptocurrency? Like if we reroll the dice and like did crypto over again, it would always be a proof of stake asset that comes out on top. Hundred percent. 
as long as the GigaBrain research community does not find any truly fundamental flaws with proof of stake, proof of work is a dinosaur. Uh, it's true that the proof of work is simpler and that it mining is a is potentially a, a, a less risky process than validating because you're not having that validator hot wallet. But all of these benefits pale in comparison to the fact that you just can't scale a chain on mining. It, it's too susceptible to 51% attacks. Uh, it can't secure more than its total market cap, which would be like very inconvenient when you're building a global settlement layer. And it uh, uh, the chain just can't sustain multi-trillion dollar valuations because your miners just just apply that drag coefficient to to keep you keep you out of those high prices. And you know, un unfortunately, uh, for for a chain like Ethereum, if we were to stay proof of work and their their proof of stake had never been in invented, there's no doubt in my mind that eventually we would pass uh, Bitcoin uh, and we would be a global settlement layer. Uh, but but the the thing about proof of work is it it's kind of insipid because you know it, it you get this great narrative where you distribute the tokens in a more egalitarian fashion because miners are dumping and hey it's only a very nominal inflation rate the tokens you're selling don't don't really hurt the market cap that much but you know at the end of the day it's a it's a very large amount of money and proof of stake is absolutely the future and so you know the the Bitcoin is not only going to get flipped by Ether, Bitcoin's going to get flipped by more than one decent public chain, you know, even as Ethereum stays number one uh, in, into the years to come. You know, Justin Drake's model of uh, like th these consensus layers being like engines has really struck uh, with me from the ultrasound money episodes we did with him. And it's it's almost like Bitcoin is kind of an engine that's running on like some coal or gasoline, a combustion engine. And then like proof of stake, if you do it well, it's like nuclear fusion you know it's like it's like an order of magnitude um more efficient in terms of dollars in versus value coming out on the other side uh, we've got a lot more to cover david though what are we going to cover in the the next part of this yeah i think you guys can tell where i'm going with this conversation uh we're going to talk about the flipping you know and your guys's schedule for it uh whether it's happening in in this year next year or the year after we'll, we'll take a peek at that and overall just talk about like the remaining ethernomics that we have not yet discussed so we're going to get to all these conversations and more right after we get through some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible juno and we are back. We are going to lead into this conversation a little bit more on this proof of stake versus proof of work store of value. Hal, I want to continue this conversation with you. Uh, can you talk about your perspectives as to what a proof of stake consensus mechanism brings to the table when producing a store of value asset? And does your answer have any sort of in indication as to how fast Ether might flip Bitcoin? Yeah, sure. Um, it's a broad question, so excuse the long-winded answer, but I'll try to get into some of the kind of first principles about how I think about, about that dynamic. Um, I think for a store of value, there's really kind of two variables and two, two characteristics that are most important to me. One is, is, is security. So I think you know, gold has been the model store of value historically. And the reason gold is, is, is such a good store of value is because it has these two characteristics. One is security, and the other is credible neutrality. So gold, if you own gold, you don't have to worry about whether it's going to exist in 100 years. It's just a physical object, and you can be pretty confident that it will remain in existence for long into the future. And that is, it checks that box fairly easily. Um, no one can control it, et cetera. And then gold is also credibly neutral. 
It's not issued by one government. It's a national resource. It doesn't have allegiance to anybody. It just is. Um, and so that's why I think it has been such a successful store of value over time because it is like a 10 out of 10 on both of those characteristics. Um, so when you think about that in the context of a cryptocurrency store of value, you kind of have to look at those, those two variables as well. So just to start on, on, on security, how a cryptocurrency gets its security is, is through the consensus mechanism. And really that security comes from the ability to protect against 51% attacks. And so as you break this down between proof of work and proof of stake, I think the relevant question is, is, is twofold. Um, how efficient is each mechanism in garnering that security? And then after that, how, how difficult is it to attack um, efficiency agnostic? So on the efficiency front, you have to think about, okay, how does somebody attack the network? So if it's a proof of work network, you have to basically acquire as much hash as currently exists such that you control 51% of the hash. Um, and then that will allow you to attack it. So the relevant question there is how much issuance does a proof of work network have to emit to generate $1 of annual security? And really what that boils down to is what is the rate of return a miner demands on his investment in order to mine? Because that's what determines how much how much the chain has to issue to achieve the, the security. And generally, this is not an exact number, but generally the way it works out in a proof of work system is approximately 100%. So if a miner is going to spend a dollar to buy a hardware rig, pay for electricity, et cetera, he's going to demand $1 every year to make that investment. And the reason, the, the fundamental reason for that is that this hardware does not last forever. So let's say it lasts three years he's gonna demand that he receives payback on his hardware in the first year, such that he can make profit in the second and third years. Um, and so generally it works out to that 100% figure. So if, if, if a proof of work network wants to achieve $100 of security, meaning that it would take $100 to 51% attack it, it must emit $100 every year to pay for that security. So it's about a one-to-one -one ratio. Now with proof of stake, it's very different. What is the rate of return that a staker requires? It's generally somewhere between three and 10%. In the case of ETH, obviously we just discussed that it's gonna be about five. So they only require a 5% return. So what that means is to get somebody to lock a dollar of their stake in the staking contract and therefore provide $1 of security, you must only issue 5% of that dollar to pay for it. So it's, 5% versus 100% on the order of 20x more efficient. So if a proof of stake network wants to generate $100 of security, it only has to pay $5 versus a proof of work system has to pay $100. So just in terms of security efficiency, proof of stake is dramatically more efficient than a proof of work system. And then this kind of the second factor for security is, okay, that's fine, but how hard is it to actually attack the network? And I think this is the part that's a little more nuanced that I don't think people really think about. With a proof of work system, you have to buy the mining rigs, you have to get the electricity, and you have to set up your hash rate. And with each mining rig that you purchase, the next one does not become materially harder to purchase than the previous one. So you just need to buy them all up, et cetera, and then, and then you have enough. And that's just a function of money. The problem on proof of stake is you're not buying hardware rigs, you're buying tokens. And there's a finite number of tokens. It's not as if... Bitmain or NVIDIA is making your hardware rigs. You're, you can only buy tokens. And with each token that you purchase, 
the next token becomes significant. Well, not necessarily significantly. Let's leave that aside. With each token that you purchase, the next token becomes a little bit harder to purchase than the past and so on and so forth. And so if you envision a scenario where let's say the Ethereum staking rate got to 51%, if you assume that those are good actors, the network is then mathematically impossible to attack because there does not exist enough tokens for somebody to have 51% of the stake because 51% of the stake is honest. Um, but obviously, you know, we don't even need that. Let's just say the network gets to uh, 30% staking rate. Only about one third of the Ethereum tokens are actually liquid and actually, you know, move around every three months. So even if you get to one third, it becomes practically impossible to attack the network under any circumstance. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't like, first of all, it's really freaking hard to buy that many tokens because as you start buying them, the price is going to go up dramatically and it's going to come, come very, very, very expensive to keep buying them. But second of all, it becomes like actually mathematically impossible because there's not enough liquid circulating supply. And so that is a kind of a reflexive defense that proof of stake has that proof of work also doesn't have. So it's more efficient and it's harder to attack. And then the part that I think is kind of really profound about this is that both mechanisms have a core fundamental problem, which is that the price or the security of the network is actually directly tied to the price of the asset. Meaning because it's tied to the issuance as the price of the token goes down, so does the value of the issuance and so does the security of the chain. And that creates the potential for a very toxic and harmful negative feedback loop by which the price goes down, therefore decreasing the security, therefore making people lose confidence, which makes the price further go down, which makes the security further go down, and so on and so forth. And in a proof of work system, you really have no natural defense mechanism against that. Because as the the hash goes down, it doesn't become harder to buy mining rigs. Like Bitmain and NVIDIA are other standalone companies that are making these products for other things, and they can just keep making them. But for proof of stake, it's not just a function of the money, right? As we articulated, it doesn't matter how low the price goes. If there's not enough circulating supply, you still can't attack it. And it still becomes quite difficult, even if there is enough, because you will start eating through it. And so the proof of stake system has a defense mechanism that's actually reflexive with price, whereas the proof of work system doesn't, which makes it a lot more vulnerable to this negative feedback loop eventually someday playing out. Um, and in the case of Bitcoin, it the Bitcoin asset has been quite fortunate, or if you don't want to say fortunate, it's just so, so it's, it's happened this way, such that around every halving, the price has also gone up dramatically. But price cannot go up exponentially forever because I, I wrote about this in my paper. Like if the price doubles every halving for the next seven halvings, the price, the, the market cap of Bitcoin will be larger than all the M2 that exists in the world. So like there, there is a natural bound. Um, and so in that context, you cannot keep relying on price going up to keep your security budget. If you keep having the security budget, eventually price will stop going up and then you're very, very vulnerable to this negative feedback loop. And so the only way to actually reliably generate the security over a long period of time is through a large fee pool. You need to have a mechanism that is sustainable to pay for your security other than issuance. And Ethereum obviously has that. It has the largest fee pool in the space. And Bitcoin obviously does not have that. And so for these multiple reasons, on the security front of this um, analysis, it's very clear to me that Ethereum is a better suited asset to be a store of value than Bitcoin. I think, honestly, I, I, I really don't know how Bitcoin is going to deal with these problems because 
They just don't generate any fees. And that's the only way to actually generate long-term security. Like their current roadmap, the security is compromised every four years into perpetuity. And that's simply not sustainable. And for a store of value, the single most important thing that you need is sustainability and confidence long-term. So that's what makes, that's just like the very large first principles structural issue that I have with Bitcoin as a successful store of value. And until that's resolved, it's just very hard for me to see it really gaining adoption. And the main way that people would go to address that is with is with tail inflation. So basically get rid of the, the halving cycle, which has some of its own problems, but that also just guarantees inflation, which is also not what you want in a store value. So for that reason, like it's fairly clear to me on that as in that angle, Ethereum is far better suited. Now, the second angle that I think we, we have to discuss, I don't know if Brian, you wanted to jump in with something, but in the in the in the case, in the sake of fairness, I think we should also discuss the second. Um, sort of characteristic, which is credible neutrality, which I think Bitcoin is currently ahead of Ethereum in. But I don't know if you want to jump in first. No, I I, I agree with that on the on the credible neutrality front. Though though I think uh, Ethereum is uh, fast catching up. I guess you know just to kind of round out this this conversation though about sort of Bitcoin versus ETH and, and kind of the flippening. So how do you think the flippening is inevitable? And if so, how soon do you think this happens? Is like the merge really the last ingredient needed? You know, uh, Ethereum gets its monetary policy figured out, basically, and that's the last thing necessary in order to flip in Bitcoin. And if so, when do you think that could happen? How soon? Can I I do the credible neutrality point for two minutes and then address that? Yeah, do that. Do that. Yes. I'll do it quickly. So basically, the only point about credible neutrality is just that the second characteristic a store value needs is, is credible neutrality. Um, it's not enough to just be secure if somebody can control you. Um, and I think Bitcoin is the way that a cryptocurrency achieves that credible neutrality is through decentralization. I think Bitcoin is clearly the most decentralized network today. There's there's an all core dev team for Ethereum that is meaningful. There isn't really for Bitcoin. I don't think there's really a debate there. However, long term, I envision a place where I think Ethereum is essentially on a roadmap. And that roadmap has an endpoint. That doesn't mean the devs will go away forever at some point, but I do envision them in call it 10 years migrating to more of a maintenance role where even if some government controls the developers, they still can't touch the chain because the chain no longer depends on them. There's other people that can do their job and the the chain is no longer reliant on that developer team. And I think Ethereum will get there. And when it does get there, it's effectively on par with Bitcoin on credible neutrality. And so at that point, it will be clearly superior for security, on par for credibly neutral, and, and just like a, an all around superior store of value. Um, now, going back to your question about the flipping, I think you know we could talk about these fundamentals that were blue in the face, and I do think they matter, but ultimately it comes down to flows. And this is why I think the merge is so significant to basically ensure, well, not ensure, but to drastically increase the probability that a flipping will someday occur. Because once you achieve the merge successfully, you, you basically have this very powerful dynamic where after that date, time becomes a tailwind for Ethereum while remaining a headwind for Bitcoin. And what I mean by that is after the merge, every single day, you know there's money that needs to sell Bitcoin. And every single day, you know, there's money that needs to buy Ethereum. One has structural supply, one has structural demand. At that point, it's just a matter of having enough time pass before those flows eventually do their job. Um, and so, yes, I do think the merge dramatically increases the odds of a flipping. 
Yes, I do think a flipping will someday occur. Like I often say, like there's no certainty in anything. So like, of course you don't know that anything will happen, but I think it's better than 50% odds. Um, and in terms of the time frame, I'd look to that long-term. I, I don't think a flipping will occur before the merge. I don't think ETH, the ETH BTC ratio is going to double in the next four weeks. I think it will go up, but I don't think it will double. Um, I think you'd be more in that, call it six month to two to three year time frame. That's a wide time frame. Yeah. That's kind of a cop out answer. It's kind of a cop out answer. Uh, six months. I don't. Six months. Six months to two years. Two to three years. The two year. It, I mean, it's that's not much of a cop out answer. Yeah. I, you know, that's that's definitely range bound. What do you think about this, Ryan? Uh, what's your certainty of the flipping? And ninety nine percent, Ryan. Ninety nine percent. There's only a the the only chance of the flipping not happening is related to black swan type tail risk, where proof of stake they find a critical flaw in proof of stake. You know, years later, some researcher eventually figures it out, or. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about there would have to be some very, very unexpected, extremely significant new development to prevent the flipping. We're absolutely going to flip it. Uh, my timeline for it is within four years. Uh, I think four years is uh, sort of a, a good a good amount of time to have the flows accumulate. Uh, I have a longer, longer explanation for, for why I think that's a good timeline related to when the next bull market starts to kick in and the fact that proof of work is more expensive in a bull market. And also, I just think there's a history in crypto of uh, the uh, inefficient market hypothesis where uh, it just it just seems to take take the market some time to like believe that a, a realized fundamental is definitely going to translate into some kind of market movement. It's almost like a game of chicken. They're like, all right, we all see the merge is successful. You know, do, do you believe it's going to cause Ether to gain on Bitcoin? Well, I believe it, but does, does, does she believe it? Do they believe it? So I, I, think there's, I think there's just sort of a natural time delay between the success of the merge and the accumulation of the flows and confidence and obviously continued growth of Ethereum and RL2 ecosystem, uh, which will eventually definitely cause a flippening. So while while I'm hundred percent in you know 99% flippening in general, I'm I'm uh 90% within four years. Uh and uh here we go. Uh I'm a spicy zero percent in the next 15 months. <laughs> Why? I knew you were gonna say something like this. Why? Well I uh I believe that the the accumulated confidence in Bitcoin is just going to take some time to dethrone. I think you know, with the merge coming, there may be a great merge trade. You know, not not my area of expertise where we we really gain on Bitcoin, and but then there could be a a, a tradfi macro event that you know, to, to Hal's point, I have no particular insight into you know the global global macro economy whether. S&P 500 is, is going up or down. I don't know. But what I do know is the crypto cycle is real. And if you've been around for a few years, you start like you get a sense that the, the, the crypto cycle is a, a highly significant uh, uh, separate confidence cycle that causes the prices of these primarily today confidence-based assets to rise and fall in some kind of uh, like natural human cycle. And this crypto cycle is separate and distinct from the global cycle. 
And so what we have is a crypto cycle that ended last, last November and uh, a, a global cycle that I don't know much about that guys like Jamie Dimon and Ray Dalio seem to think there's maybe a lot of challenges with. And so for me, I feel very confident that the crypto cycle is going to continue to play out over, over the next year or so. And I, I feel some degree of confidence that the global macro economy could provide new headwinds, uh, uh, not my area of expertise. And so I think you just sort of put that all together. And I just, I just don't see the, the crypto market you know, in, in November, or let's say January next year, January next year emerges four or five months old. We've saved, uh, uh, however many, you know, possibly at that point about, about, a, a, a one to several billion in minor payments, you know, with the current reduced fee level for this, this crypto bear market. And I just, I just don't think that having saved a few billion in fees and the merge chugging along for five months is going to cause that kind of glacial shift in the crypto climate, I just think it's going to take a little longer. So 99% flipping, and I, I just think it's going to take a while. And no doubt in my mind that, you know, those of you who specialize in shorter term time horizons are going to have a lot of fun and a lot of volatility, you know, between, between now and then. Well, so let's, uh, let's end this. And this has been a great discussion, uh, guys, but let's end this with one question, which is uh, positioning. Uh, relative to your thesis, so um, Ryan, you're, you're, we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Hal. But Ryan, your your thesis is bullish, long ETH, I'd imagine. Though in the short run, you, you don't you don't think uh, much will happen relative to the merge. In the long run, you are bullish ETH. So, how do you position a portfolio for something like that? Is it just simply buy and hold ETH? Uh, if so, that sounds that sounds real good. Uh, is there anything else you do? Uh, buy and hold ether, and for me. Uh... Over the past few cycles, I was able to increase my my ether position uh, about a hundred percent through uh, some sort of judicious and conservative leveraged buys. Uh, you know, using using our traditional facilities like like Maker. Uh, and so for me, uh, I think there's a question of when do I when do I get in at leverage? I'm not there yet. Uh, that's just because. Uh, I, I do think the prices we were at a few months ago were truly low. I would have been very happy to enter there. I'm just I'm just kind of rolling the dice and thinking that you know, given the size of my ether stack already, which is considerable for my family, I'm I'm ready to wait and bet that I can pick up crypto at low prices in the coming quarters. Uh, so for me, just just already being a large ether holder, I'm going to wait a few quarters and then I'm going to get in at leverage. And you know, sail through the flipping, and I, I think uh, I think we're going to see you know 10k to 25k towards the middle middle of the decade. And is uh, triple digit ETH on your bingo card, or did we hit that once? Never again. Unfortunately, I, I think it's 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 a possibility. Yeah, Oof. I think especially uh, as a function of global macro. All right, Brian, now. when you when you uh, take your leverage uh, with Maker or Compound Ave or whatever, how long would you do you think that you would hold that? Is that like it's not that's not like a two three week thing, right? That's like a, you're holding that leverage position for a long time, right? That's right. I'll I'll pick a, a liquidation price that I feel very comfortable sleeping with, although I won't you know uh, uh, step too far away from from my uh, my my hardware wallets, uh, and uh, then I just. Then I just let it ride. I just, you know, uh, you got a liquidation price of, say, two hundred and fifty. Great, you've just, you've just, it's, it's free money, man. Like there's, there's a certain <laughs> level that we're not going below, 
and we're definitely going <laughs> we're definitely going up you know eventually yeah. let's so, talk let's yeah. not recreate the sailor soundbite i i uh mortgage your house mortgage everything. <laughs> yeah. let's not do it that's let's a great soundbite it's one of my favorites no no um, let's not do that quick story on that though leverage um, is not free money I, I do not think that i did think that at one point in time and i remember when we uh dropped down to double digits and i had a liquidation point point that got uncomfortably close um, so just another reminder that anything can happen in crypto yes. for sure. But how, how are you positioning yourself? What is the, your, sure. your most preferred way to get exposure to the upside in the merge here? Yeah. Uh, I will not be levering long through the DeFi applications. I, <laughs> my investors do not have to worry about that. Um, I will basically be, you know, I've talked about this at, at large and, and nothing changes for me. Um, long ETH. Long ETH BTC, long liquid staking derivatives, long ETH call spreads. Um, those four instruments are the the four that 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 I uh, that I've had on for a long time and that I continue to hold. Um, okay. Can you tell us about like when, like the timing? Are you like are you percentage deployed? Uh, did you have any information about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I was. It's, 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 it's a little bit of a gray area. I got in trouble for this the other day because I talked about it on Twitter and my lawyer <laughs> messaged me and was like, you can't don't do that. This. That's solicitate. Well, I don't even know if I'm supposed to say that. Um, anyway, <laughs> so it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a gray area, um, what you can and can't talk about. So I'll try to be cautious. Um, we were very deployed two months ago uh, over the weekend. We took leverage down a little bit, um, mainly just because I felt like I had a lot of alpha two months ago. And now, you know, with a date being set, with everybody talking about the merge, I felt like some of that alpha had been priced in. Like we said, I feel like some of the merge is priced in, but not all the merge is priced in. So naturally, I feel like as an investor, my position sizing should match my conviction levels. Um, so we took stuff down a little bit, but we still have a, a large core position. Um, the strikes that we have on the call spread is we bought the September 1500, 2000 call spread for $50 about two months ago or six weeks ago. So, you know, above 2000, that pays out $500. It's like a nine to one payout. Um, and we're just going to hold that pretty much through the merge. Um, and yeah, so I'd say we were, we were very deployed. We're now moderately deployed. Um, and that then the position that we, and, and part of the reason for that, honestly, was I want to be able to hold my position just through the merge and not worry about it. And as just a, like, uh, an, an investment fund manager, there's a level of sort of risk management that you have to do. And even if we think this bad scenario outcome is only 3%, I still probably shouldn't have, you know, be too far over my skis going into that scenario, just in case it does happen. So now I feel like I've reduced to a place where. I'm comfortable holding through the, through the merge from here and whatever happens, happens. All right. So end us. Uh, the question of this episode was, is the merge priced in? What's the uh, final answer on that, Hal? No. Ryan, it's the merge price. Absolutely in. not. We are, we are going to the moon. Uh, patience will be rewarded. There we go, guys. I think that wraps it up. Um, Bankless Nation, um, none of this, of course, has been financial advice. You definitely have to make your own decisions. Some action items, though, for you, and I'm going to thank these two gentlemen in a second, but an action item is Hal's entire thesis on the Ethereum merge 
is coming out tomorrow. Okay. This is like 25, 26 pages. It's got graphs and everything. It's fantastic. Uh, in order to get that, go to the Bankless newsletter. You'll get that in your inbox tomorrow. That's newsletter.banklesshq.com. Subscribe. Some of you guys are just watchers and listeners. Be a reader as well. Get this thesis in your inbox tomorrow. I promise you it's worth it. Um, Hal and Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on Bankless today. Thanks for having us, guys. Thank you guys for having me. As always, I'll say again, none of this has been financial advice. ETH is risky. All of crypto is risky. So is DeFi. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west to the merge and beyond. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.